0: We've been hearing in the last couple of talks with Doug and Larry the direct method of practice which is to look right into the heart of our relationship to life and to learn from it. This evening I'm going to continue on this vein but I'm going to Also, step back and continue reflections on the approach that I started in my first talk, which is shamatha vipassana, or calming and steadying the mind and seeing into experience. So, we focus more on calming the first talk, and we'll focus more on clear seeing and the results of that in this talk, and we'll see hopefully how they're interdependent, explore that and how sort of classical insights and also just the normal ways of that our perceptions change when our awareness grows, how those can really help the quality of our living. So uh, I use this analogy in terms of qualities of concentration of two boats. Last time. So when we have a lot of, when our, our mind is really able to stay deeply with an object and cultivate a really sustained deep looking, then we have like a, a stronger samadhi. And then when it's a little, a little less deep, but maybe more applicable and more flexible, that's like, so the first is like a boat. That's uh, like a power boat. It's a little easier to navigate when you open up the stuff that's arising, and if we have just a, uh, a rowboat, right? That's what it feels like, doesn't it, if we're lucky? <laughs> Maybe it feels like there's no boat. <laughs> Awareness is actually the boat. Um, that we need something that can give us some buoyancy in, in when we're being hit by all these different ways, the currents of life, to make our way from the shore from A to A, right? <laughs> Deeper into the moment and what that reveals. Well, in a couple of groups, people said, oh, I like that analogy, and, uh, but I thought my boat was more like a speedboat. They wanted to be on a speedboat, not just a powerboat, right? They wanted to get there really fast. Another person said, my my rowboat is leaky. (laughs) That's the one we can relate to, right? So both of those are a little dangerous. So a rowboat that's leaky, you're gonna sink unless you go back and patch it up, right? And a speedboat, even though you might have some concentration, there's a lot of rough waves out there. Maybe some hidden rocks. So if you don't slow down, you might get into an accident. Okay. And there are many, when, when shamatha, the way we're using it now, as it, as, it, as it builds, it becomes, one word is samadhi, which is the steadiness of awareness. And when it turns into vipassana, I'm going to call it uh, just a term I'll I'll coin here a little, is uh, the samadhi of seeing. So when there's enough concentration, then we actually, and you can taste that. There's like a, you can see clearly into a moving field. So what is this journey? It's from now to now, and it's a journey of self-discovery. So why do we need to move from just calming and studying to looking into our life? Well, it's It's kind of like a seed. We have a seed that has the potential to be a big tree and shelter many people, like those great trees in Africa. Uh, But it's a seed and it germinates under the ground. It needs that. And in a way, when we stay in our objects, so we're working with the breath, we stay in there, it's like we're letting the seed germinate. But in order for the seed to come to life and become a plant you and become a tree, and reach its full potential, it has to open up and then be nourished and grow by all the conditions, the sun, the rain. So that's kind of like our life for our seed of awakening to become full, to reach its potential. We have to let it be nourished by and be exposed and have strength in the face of all of life, all the things of our life. So this is the inner journey of self-discovery. And in the beginning, as we open it up, self-exploration is often bad news. Have you noticed? Because what do we see? We see all our pimples, or maybe we see something, we see not just pimples, but we see qualities of mind and heart, and their manifestations and repetitive thoughts that we'd rather not look at, or that we'd rather not be attached to looking at. And we suffer. So in the beginning, uh, bad news is, it's up in bad news when we look at ourselves. We feel all the energy that's trapped, don't we? And we feel how it freezes us. And then it's nice to go back to our breath or whatever helps us. Um, But that's not all of it. We have to open up to all of life to make it full in our life. So when does it become good news? Well, when we start to open and realize that we see enough into our hearts and our minds as they're functioning, we realize, oh, the suffering that I have in here is actually, it's actually from in here. There's the outside suffering, of course, that prompts it. But there's the suffering on the inside which is based on how my mind and heart is meeting things. And as we've, as we've grown in the practice here, even we realize that, say, even things like greed, we talked about greed, hatred, and delusion as being these poisons, that even they're not actually the problem. Because if we can see them, then they're workable. Then they're not the problem. So we realize that the good news is... <clears throat> that when we start to see things, we see our patterns then, if they become workable, then perhaps we can change. And perhaps we can actually take responsibility and that we can get a real inner strength from doing that. And that's our vipassana practice. But we need to have a good attitude in doing this. We can't just have a bad attitude. So this is from Basho. It says, If... Go to the pine if you want to learn about the pine, or to the bamboo if you want to learn about the bamboo. In doing so, you must leave your preoccupation with yourself. Otherwise, you impose yourself on the object and do not learn. So wait a minute. How do we get out of our own way when we're looking at ourselves? That's like Doug said a little bit before, right? In the hall, he mentioned what... How do, you, how do you not have a self to look at yourself? It's actually The answer is actually very, very simple. How do you have a good attitude? Well, every single moment that awareness is functioning clearly and cleanly, right? remember mindfulness, if we look at it as a definition, it's, it's non-judgmental. it doesn't, it's, it's the heart and the mind that wakes up and is not pushing and pulling. It's not grasping, it's not rejecting. It's not a mental acceptance either has nothing to do with that. It may, for, it may go into that, but it's just that sense of non reactivity and being with. Whenever we have those moments, we are not self centered. How can we be? What's the nature of awareness when it arises? Does it have a center? Where is it? Does it have a periphery? Does it have anything we can call self? No, it functions in relation to our life. It functions into relation to our life and things as they arise. But every moment that we're present, really present, there's no selfishness in that. It's so simple and so beautiful. There's no selfing. So the more this grows, um, then we, it's easier to embrace the attitude of learning that we really want to learn from our experience. And not turn away, as Larry's been saying. Just don't turn away. <laughs> Just bring that fresh, present moment awareness to everything that's there. But that's not so easy as we find, because we have like, these, all these default modes inside, don't we? So we incline towards pleasure, right? It's kind of our default mode. Let's say in daily life. In daily life, if let's say you're sitting and you're watching, I don't know, TV or reading a book or something and then you start to feel a little lonely, what do you do? Well, I don't know, I've, I, more than once I found myself in the freezer getting some sorbet or something and it's in my hand that I'm like, how did I get here? How did that happen? I have no idea. Well, that's, that's a, in the face of something that's, that's not comfortable, that's a habitual unconscious mode of being. It's like, a, it's like our, our inner computer is hardwired, there are these default modes of reactivity. And moving towards what we think will give us pleasure and moving away, rejecting things which have discomfort. And we see it on retreat all the time, don't we? All the time. <laughs> sit in and sit out. Bite in and bite out. I'm well, not bite out. There's no bite outs. <laughs> <laughs> so we have these little bits when we do that. Every time we buy in, there's a little bit of selfing. There's a little bit of identification with a habit energy and a movement and when we do that it's hard to face it's hard to face our what's arising isn't it it's really it's hard to be kind of objective and fresh and have a learning a good learning non-selfish attitude when our inclination is to move this way and that in relation to experience and avoid that which may be unpleasant so there's an analogy of um, <laughs> these people lined up and there's an option that you can either go into a jump into a cool pool Or a hot fire. Uh, But what the people don't see is that everyone who jumps into the cool pool, they immediately wake up in a hot fire. (laughs) And everyone that jumps into a hot fire, they immediately wake up into a cool pool. So what is that saying? It's saying we have to face ourselves to be free of ourselves. Now, there's an, a danger in this analogy on retreat for us because, and this is because there's a real psychological bend to the Dharma in the West for many people. And what that often translates into is I'm going to work on something that might feel like a fire, right? Some emotion that I want to work through. And so we'll incline ourselves to investigate there, to go there. And it comes up in the groups and in individual interviews and... I know in my own personal practice, it comes up. (laughs) So, and there can be a good spirit, like a warrior, a practice spirit that's really good. We want to look at our stuff, but we make an agenda out of it. And then we're actually not practicing. Because our movement is being led by what? Wanting. So, in this practice, as we open up, we don't choose we have to really, the, the spirit of learning is really to surrender to allowing life. So if we're sitting and breathing and we open it up or just naturally partway or all the way, it's to really allow life to decide. And that's a moment by moment, it's not even a decision, it's, it's prior to thought. It's an inclination of, of heart and mind. So can we trust this process deeply enough so that it actually, it works on its own? And it, and it, and it provides in its own time and space. It allows things to move. It allows those frozen energies. So when we see them, and we give them space, and we we'll explore in this in more detail, then they can move. And that's the journey of Vipassana. So I remember once I was, and this, but there's no, Practice with no agenda. I just, It's a very powerful, very powerful way to practice. It brings gifts. You know when life surprises you? When life breaks through our agendas and defenses because we're really there for it, we get gifts. We get surprises, we get little learnings. So, and, we get, we, and, and if our emotions need to work, then they, they do. So I was in Burma once doing a long retreat and uh, I'm just sitting there minding my business, shamatha vipassana, back and forth, doing my thing. And then all of a sudden, my grandfather had died some years ago. And we were, I mean, we were close enough, but we were a little, we were just a little estranged because he thought I was a little nuts to <laughs> go off when I got my very expensive degree in economics from a good college and run off to his Zen monastery and basically only come back for visits for a better part of a decade or more. So it was a little, I was the hope, right? And it's a little disappointing. So, you know, okay, he's old school. Uh, But I was sitting there and all of a sudden just minding my own business, this incredible love and grief for my grandfather just poured through me for, it was like hours. And it just poured through, there was no agenda. And it was very beautiful and it released all this energy, but it just happened. I was just minding my business. It didn't happen because I went over there. I hadn't thought about him, actually, for quite a while. So that's just an example of how when we practice, now I give you that story, and then you'll be like, okay, I'm not going to attend anything, and then I better get some big release, you know. (laughs) He said I would. Doesn't work that way. (laughs) The way it works is So not choosing an agenda is a very powerful way to practice and it's moment by moment. But there's another element, which is, as we open, how much can we actually, how much that life is showing us, can we actually take in skillfully? Whether it be an emotion, physical sensation, just being with a thought without indulging in it, attaching to it. How much can we do that? And that's the art of learning to use our chamatavipassana, of learning to use moving back to the breath, opening partway or really opening. And really opening just means letting life decide. The stronger, like this samadhi of seeing or this balance of awareness, but in a flexible way grows, the more we can take on. And we need to be humble in this process because we can get an agenda that I'm just going to take it all on, right? Even if it's open. And so that's a very beautiful place in practice is just to see when the seeing is strong and and more continuous, we can open. And then when it's more skillful to spend more time grounding and studying. So I like to go back to this journey of self-discovery and uh, the archetype of its culmination. So the Buddha, after his awakening, he was wandering the dusty roads of India, and uh, I think they were dusty, at least they 're dusty now i don 't know what they were like twenty five hundred years ago actually i heard okay I heard there were a lot of forests back then, but so he 's wandering the the <laughs> dirt roads of India, and someone comes up to him he 's got a glow right he's got you know you know the moments when you 're kind of glowing from the inside right when you're really aware and awake uh, and someone came up to him and said. Uh, who are you? What are you?" He said, are you a man? Are you a normal human? You know, like, what are you? And he simply said, I am awake. So this is a beautiful expression when wakefulness is what is the resting place. It's like the, we call the default mode the hard drive, whatever, I don't know, I'm not a computer guy, but sounds good. The place where our minds and our hearts come back to and where they move from, just think of that, wakefulness. So that's a beautiful expression of awareness that is established in a continuous way, where sati, another way of looking, when when mindfulness becomes matured through (coughs) shamatha and it starts to see clearly, wakefully into life in all its forms. It's, called, it's, it's satipanya. So wisdom, wisdom is panya and sati is mindfulness. So those, come, those two come together as one field of awareness. So that's great for him, but what about us? So every time that we mindfully come back to the present, we're acknowledging a bit of that wakefulness, that I am awake quality. And throw out the I am, it's a convention, okay? (laughs) So when the Buddha, the night of the Buddha's awakening, actually, he's sitting there and he was was open, right? Perfect sati, panya. And things came at him to try to tempt him out of his present moment awareness. So these personifications of greed came, personifications of anger came big ones like armies and tons of since he was a guy you know tons of dancing girls and all these try to tempt him off his Phew, here I am awake um and he didn't move he didn't move he didn't even move when the all, this personification came and said I am the ruler. I I control much of the universe or whatever. And you and I can rule this together. And He didn't budge. Even power didn't get him. And the final thing this being said to him is, what gives you the right to be fully awake? To be fully alive in the midst of all of these energies that are trying to pull us away, trying to pull you away. And he touched the earth. There he is. It's the earth-touching mudra. I think it's very beautiful in this ultimate sense, that this full awakening that Buddha, the Buddha represents, because it's not ethereal. His witness is a grounded contact with the immediate moment. And what's beautiful for us is that we can touch that quality, that no-selfing quality, that wakeful quality, every single time that we touch deeply into the moment. So this sense of the this wakefulness when it becomes matured very matured there's more of a sense and you can get it too we we all get it at times there's some of the best times in practice especially on a retreat where there's a sense that we really belong because we're really deeply in the moment there's something very precious about that So I use the term when I've talked about shamatha the first time I used these three terms to talk about the active dynamic quality of awareness, and one was of, with, and into. So I'm going to use those a little bit, play with those a little bit more, but more on this side, on the Vipassana side. So of was this sense of being aware of, right? And so we touch wakefulness by being aware of the moment again and again, building our steadiness, and then seeing into experience. Or just through interest, poof, the direct method, just seeing into experience, okay? So when I looked at up the dictionary, this, the definition of of, uh, uh, one of the definitions of of is belonging to, right? A sense of belonging. And our normal sense of belonging, of identity, is with all the people and things in our life. Right? We're, we'll start with ourselves. I am, I am you know, a man. I guess I'm giving a Dharma talk, so that means I'm a Dharma teacher. And i Uh, Red Sox fan, sorry, all you Yankees fans. So I identify with all these things. I'm a husband, right? Uh, Et cetera, et cetera. So we find a sense of belonging in all the things. And you can just say, like, I was born in Maine, I'm of this clan, I'm of this history, I'm of this race. So we identify it's of clan, it's of race, it's of sex, it's all these things. So that's how we identify. So what did the Buddha do? He said, I'm awake. (laughs) Now, we can get in this trap when we practice of thinking that awareness is kind of, it's very impersonal, it denies our humanity a certain level. So can we have all of our normal belongings and also belong to this awareness in the present moment that isn't dependent on all these things, all these conditions? So when I was walking the loop today, I just think about myself, and one of the, when you really belong in awareness, then there's such a freedom in that. Okay, that's the contrast. You're, there's, where's your home? Your home is where your heart is, right? You know, that phrase. But it's, it's where our attention is in any moment. Right? If we're longing for home, then our mind is on somewhere where it's not. So I was walking the loop today, and there was someone came uh, jogging by, it was a guy, and he has black dog running next to him and he had a, he had a baby carriage and he was talking. <laughs> I couldn't see the cell phone. I didn't know what was going on. And I said, wow, okay, this guy's got some clear belonging going on here, right? He's, he's really identical. He's got his dog. He's got the kid, the wife. I don't know. He's probably got the wife. I don't. I hope he's got a wife. <laughs> he's got someone to help him with this. And so we're defined by our roles. They're, they're, we're, they, and they give us meaning. They give us belonging. Now, on one level, that's completely fine. Where it gets difficult, where our belonging sense gets difficult and it causes suffering is when we, when our belonging, our identity, that gives us a kind of comfort. And it becomes like default modes of s- leaning into what is comfortable, what is familiar. And as was described very nicely in the last two talks, there's this whole cluster of how we create images of meaning mixed with emotion and self-worth that are based on a sense of if I have this then I will get this feeling of belonging right I will f- so that's with cars houses things beautiful you know partners that we'd like the way they look and act everything has to it has to fit a certain way and it's held together by thought it's not thought. Thought's innocent by itself. It's just thought. But it binds everything together in this sense of selfing. So, okay, that's the way it is. So what's the problem? The problem is that in our deepest sense of finding psychological meaning, our deepest sense of belongingness, we put, we put it through our creations of mind onto all of these things, and we internalize them as giving meaning to us. And those things, first of all, they're not the way we imagine them often. And even if they are, they change, and they change unpredictably. Or we change, like a car that we thought was the best car. It's still the same car well, it's a little older now, and our taste has changed. So it, how many people get a new car every two years and are excited about it? or I've got one that's getting pretty banged up. It's got eight or nine years on it. I still love it, but I still think, oh, this doesn't give me that same charge it used to. So it's changed and, my cha- and I've changed because of desire. So my sense of finding meaning in objects changes, they change, I change, and I have to keep fulfilling that. And it doesn't, doesn't work. It doesn't give me this deep sense of belonging that I thought it would, it's always changing. So we become addicted, literally. We become addicted to the security of our familiarity, of our energies of wanting, holding, creating meaning. And so thought at the center of this, I don't think Descartes was too far off in a certain way. He said, I think, therefore I am. We put meaning, when we really look at it, how things get clustered together, we put deep meaning on holding on to our thoughts around things. You can see it on retreat when it starts to break apart or when you have an image of something that's causing you suffering and then you actually realize that's, that's just an image and you feel it in the body and then when you feel it in the body you realize that's just a thought. What happens to the power of it? What happens to the meaning that we gave it? Well, that's for us to discover moment by moment. So our movement is not to throw out all these and actually just to work. We work with how we do the, where we add the extra. And then we understand that healthy ways of belonging in the world as humans are just just natural. They're good. I mean, they, they are. They're part of being human. But that the movement, when we become more and more present, is to realize that a deeper sense of belonging is not contingent on these things. It's not opposed to them, but it's not contingent. So I think, therefore I am, versus I am awake. And the movement is one which the Bhagavad Gita calls beautifully being in the world, but not of the world. And you can think that's a detachment, and it can be taken that way. But I would say to be in the world, but not of it, is to be really in it. And really not defended, constricted, limited by it, by our lives. So the movement is to finding a sense of belonging in being more fully awake and alive and aligned with this clear, flexible seeing energy. The Buddha, I am awake. Seeing Mara, right? All these forces. When we touch in, we're switching from getting nourished by the objects we can still enjoy, but it's not going to the other level. We're getting nourished by the quality of how we're meeting the moment. The quality of the seeing. And the Buddha had this quiet, it's very quiet, passionate call to us. I don't know if he'd call it passionate, but to me it is. He says the teachings are available, wakefulness is available in the here and now. Come and see for yourself. He's just saying, come and see. So that's what our journey is. That's what our journey of self-discovery is. So what happens when we become more at home? in awareness, in present moment awareness, and in this say in the way we're practicing here, and we open it up. Our awareness becomes more open, doesn't it? More awake, more alive. Joseph Goldstein, who was one of my And this has an energetic uh, component. Joseph Goldstein, who I did a bunch of, I did a lot of practice with him and he's one of the founders here. He told me once in an interview in a three-month retreat upstairs um, that the whole practice, like as the practice matures, it's really all about getting a bigger energetic holding of experience. And then what does that do? Well, let's look at the third of these aspects of these three words I've been using. So the sense of being aware of, right? Actually, it's the second one, sorry. Jumping ahead. Being aware of to a sense of like belonging in the present. Much more and more finding our, our worth there, value. To the capacity when this grows is to be with experience in a different way and then this is where insight starts to happen and some cla- some are cl- classic and some are just ways of seeing that change our relationship to living so how in our relationship to living changing how we are with life so joseph just said like in practices as it as it grows practicing the shamatha vipassana our energetic capacity to hold experience grows isn't that interesting And the sense of being with, in the first first mode of shamatha, it's the staying with, to ground and stabilize attention, right? You stay with, you stay with your objects. This is a sense of, you still have to stay with in a moving field, but there's more of a sense when it's balanced of just being with. There's less of a doing in it. And then what are some of the, has anyone experienced that? So what are some of the sort of ways that that manifests? Um, Pema Chodron has this, she was asked if she's still bothered by thought a lot in practice. And uh, I, I like this because it's something that I've experienced and other people I know have. And she said, um, I still have a lot of thoughts, but I'm not, I'm not distraught by them as much. They don't matter as much. It's kind of like you've been through it enough times. You see that on retreat sometimes. Okay, here it comes. And your energy, your capacity to hold, is just a little bigger. So it still might be there. It's not that it necessarily disappears, but that you just, you're just bigger, right? It's like Doug talked about the salt. You put some salt in a small container, it's really salty. You put it in a bigger container, awareness is bigger. It holds it differently, it doesn't taste as salty. There's a beautiful image. Um, uh, one Tibetan teacher, he was teaching his students and he had this chalkboard and he drew a bird on it. He said, what do you see? And they all said, I see a bird. And he said, no, he said, you should see a bird. Or he said, what I see is a bird flying through the sky. So there's this sense of being when we're more at home in the present and awareness grows, that things can move through this place and we can relax. We can tend to be more in it. Right? being with, being with what arises and being with the silence as well that arises. One of um, the teachers from Burma that I like the best, I've worked with some, Utejaniya, just taught a retreat here maybe uh, two months ago. Um, I was, he, he was teaching at Larry's Center, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, and he's doing a Q&A. That's, that's what he does. It's great. Um, he, someone, some uh, lady asked him, said, I'm, I'm really lonely. So it was the emotional texture. I'm really lonely. And he said to her, make friends with awareness. Make friends with awareness. And I thought that was so beautiful. And so the way he teaches, he doesn't teach coming back to anchors that much. It's just a relying on this, as Doug's been pointing out again and again, the wakefulness that's happening naturally, organically, spontaneously in the moment, again and again. So make friends with awareness. And when you make friends with awareness, well, what are your friends? They take care of you too, right? They're friends. So they can be there um, with your... Loneliness. So sometimes awareness is enough and sometimes in our practice we have to move where we bring, we have this sense of breathing with. So that's a very, also a very powerful way to be, to be with. Thich Nhat Hanh says, the Buddhist attitude, and this is for anger, the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. We don't run from it. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone. It is with mindfulness. The anger or the fear or the shame or the guilt, the loneliness, is not alone. It is with mindfulness. So we can be with an object and more open field. We can just be. This sense of being held in awareness has a natural sense or with the breath or just being in awareness or you can use other other objects, other things that bring you in the present as well, has a quality, can have a quality of natural compassion in it. Isn't that right? It's held. You can read this sense of abiding. Joseph has a a book called Abiding in Mindfulness. You're abiding in this presence of mindfulness and what arises in it is being held. It's quite... It's, it can be quite a different quality than just a coldness. I was asked in one of the groups why we don't sort of haven't talked about compassion or metta, loving kindness, at all. And the main reason is because it's, it, it can be inherent in the quality of the seeing. And we've been using words like relax, allow, as ways of touching this, but in a way that doesn't add anything extra. Now, I'm doing a very small digression here. And I want to talk about the use of compassion and loving kindness in the service of this process of what we're doing. So either of these practices can be used as a shamatha practice, just like we can use the breath. Okay. And they can also be used in a, in a way that is uh, like an antidote. And it means that let's say you can use them so that you learn to touch this quality upholding experience and difficult experience in a way that's, that's more tender and more has a buoyancy to it, that sometimes mindfulness is hard for us to tap. So the metta, this teaching on metta, which is wishing well, it came from this, this story, I mean, that's how it comes down to us, where the, the Buddha, um, there were these monks that were practicing in the forest and they, they, uh, they wanted to leave because where they were practicing, they were frightened, right? They didn't like the vibe. Uh, And it said uh, that there were tree spirits, so these these forms. So we'd call them fear, right? Or loneliness, or inner. And they wanted to leave. So they went to the Buddha and said, Give us a better place to practice, (laughs) right? And uh, he said, No, go back, but here's your tool learn to cultivate love in your heart for yourself, for them. And the story goes that they did that and, uh, and then when it was time for them to leave, the, the tree spirits didn't want them to because they were friends. They were bring, I don't know how this works. They're bringing them food. I don't know how that works. but <laughs> <laughs> Nectar from the gods? I have no idea. <laughs> so another practice that is done in compassion side is um, so we can use this generative develop, uh, pr- development practice too and some people on the retreat have been using them some. So just knowing that. Another one is compassion. And um, Joseph, i was speaking of, he actually teaches a lot of what's called bodhicitta, which is this, this practice, f- you do your practice for the benefit of others and for, you ha- take this kind of pledge that you'll keep returning uh, to help others become free. And you don't worry about time. Uh, and that can really open the heart. And so like when the Dalai Lama came here, uh, and orienting towards, towards suffering and, and being open to it naturally. So the Dalai Lama came for a visit once here. And I guess uh, the story is that Sharon Salzberg, who's one of the founders here and a really wonderful teacher of metta, loving kindness, she was in a whole group of people and she had hurt her leg, I guess. And she was sitting at the back, standing at the back when he came up. And immediately when he opened, like they opened the car doors and he got out, he looked around, you know, said hello. And he immediately went for her and he said, Sharon, what happened? So that natural response to suffering in the heart, to, be, to holding it, right? To not turning away from it is there in compassion. Now I want to give a little twist as we come back to our basic theme of bring these in the moment. It's not a hard jump to make. So loving kindness in our practice is how we relate with the quality of our attention to our fear, to all the things that are arising in us. So can we touch an attitude that is more, loving, and embracing? And in terms of compassion, can we have this energy of returning to the moment so that we can really allow our awareness to hold, to hold as long as we need to, in whatever way is skillful, whatever is arising. So we can turn both of these, which can be practices, into attitudes, present moment attitudes that bring us more deeper into our work that we're doing here this approach and the main meaning of this is really deeply is that the outer and the inner in a certain way they're they're, they're just life So, how do we bring the mind that is calm and steady into daily life? Satipanya with hopefully natural kind of responsiveness in it, right? I want to give three examples of, a few examples of of things that have sort of recently or longer ago than that happened um, that I felt are natural when our satipanya is strong, and our hearts are open, what can happen? So one is, how many people live in rural New England? Probably not too many. Uh, but there's where I live, which is on the coast, nor- in the, uh, northeast Massachusetts, near the coast, Newburyport area. Um, there's, a lot of, there's been a lot of turtles, there's a lot of ponds. The turtles are going along the roads. And I like to ride my bicycle, so uh, go bike riding. So I go out, and a couple of times in the last week or so when I've gone out, I've seen turtles trying to make their way from one side of the road to another. And I stopped and I've like stayed with, I blocked the traffic. I stayed with them. come on little turtle. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's just because I don't want to ride that hard or something. I am taking a break. I don't know, but no, it's like I stopped in the middle of the road. I, one time I was like, I had a great time actually. One time there was, I was stopping traffic and I was like, come on. And he started to go the wrong way. And then I was like, I had to pick him up, this little head. Sometimes it, you know, I didn't know. Maybe I hope it wasn't a snapping turtle. But he started to go around the other way, and someone came up on a big motorcycle, big Harley type guy. And he stopped, he said, a, and, was, a, and he's like, Oh, I saw a real big one the other day. And then someone did the same thing. And <laughs> it's like, Have a good day. It's a like, nice way to meet people, do nice things. <laughs> uh, so the, the, the turtle uh, made its way. And so that's, was that compassion? That was actually, I was riding. And my heart was open and there's a resonance. And I just saw it and I was like, I don't want that thing to get crushed. I've seen him crushed. So, and I'm just, you know, I'm not some great bodhisattva or something. It's just, it was a natural response and I didn't have to bike so far. Um, Actually, I did. It just took a little longer. So that's one example. Another example is from um, the place I teach in Newburyport. A, A woman who was retired and she's she reported one day she was just doing a beginner's class and she was in week five maybe or something and she was doing this practice and then she reported that she was really present when she was driving and she passed a hitchhiker and she's never picked up a hitchhiker in her life and it was a guy and why would she pick up a guy hitchhiker? okay so she didn't so she drove on but a little voice in her said i have to pick him up i have to and it was gnawing at her so she turned around circled around picked him up and brought him you know, hopefully where we need to go. Uh, and she came in and I, and I asked her how to go. And she said, she said, oh, I, I don't know why I did that. It's, maybe it's because of this mindfulness stuff. I have no idea. I've never picked up a hitchhiker. And, but you know what? If I hadn't picked him up, the guy had like three, ch- I think it was three or four children, and his car had broken down. It's like, if I hadn't picked him up, there's a lot of suffering for him. I, I re- checked in with her later. I guess he I guess didn't just break down once. I don't know what. He seems to hitchhike because picked, she picked him up again. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I have another example of, of, of kind of not like being compassionate towards oneself, which is setting boundaries. So I was, I was hiking out in the Sierra some years ago and uh, it was Labor Day, I think, and I couldn't get a bus to get off the mountain. So I had to hitchhike to Reno and some guy tried to like pick me up and I looked in his car. I said, no, 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 no. And he went around the block and he tried to pick me up again. And I almost got in. But I was like, I remember feeling the sense, I've got to take care of myself. This is not, prob- this may not be safe. I've got to take care of myself. So I set a clear boundary. One time in India, Sharon, so it works different ways, right? Sharon Salzberg was riding in India in Calcutta um, for their teacher, Manindra. She was going to see her teacher and someone, she was on a rickshaw and someone tried to uh, come and pull her off of it. It was raining. Maybe some of you know this story. And she didn't know what to do. She kind of freaked out, but she didn't get pulled off and she made her way to Menindra and she said, Menindra, what should I have done? She's here doing, she's here practicing mindfulness and being open and kind. And Menindra said, as the story goes, with all the compassion in your heart, loving kindness in your heart, you should have smashed the guy with the umbrella. (laughs) So it doesn't have to look one way. (laughs) Okay. The last section, and is it okay if I go over? Too late. I'm already (laughs) up. The final section is on um, the last of these three words, which is into, which is this sense of not just establishing ourselves in this kind of, of being aware of and establishing in the sense of belonging. And it's not just the sense of learning to stay with it's, and, starting, and starting to move in a different place from the, the kind of balance of seeing and being available, right? Responsiveness rather than reactivity. It's actually seeing into. And the, the, main, um, the main way, and this is classical insights in, in insight meditation, is one of the ways is through impermanence. And so when you see into the changing nature of experience again and again, or even one time really clearly, it can open the heart and mind very deeply. Maybe you've experienced that. I remember on one retreat I was doing here, just a little sample of it. I was sitting out, it's a long retreat, I think, six weeks or three months or something. And I was out by the road and um, I was just sitting there, quiet, open. And this truck came by and I just remember driving by and I just heard the sound. And when the sound ended, just my mind just stayed with it until it was gone and then just opened into this very beautiful, wide, very beautiful space just through seeing. So seeing particulars, the changing nature of particular experience, when our minds are are ripe, when sati and panya or shamatha vipassana are balanced, Things can break through. There are many stories in Zen, like where there's like a sound of a rock being kicked or something that just sparks the mind into a much deeper place, more open, more awake, abiding place. So I'll make it go from the, uh, to the mundane, go from that level to a really mundane level. Uh, I remember one time I was in the kitchen with with my now wife. She was my girlfriend then. We had a house together. And you know how you get caught up in things with your partners and you get in kind of, you just, someone says something and someone says something else. I don't even remember what it was about someone doing something or, uh, and I just remember we we're get, just about to get locked into this same cycle that we've had many times. And I just spun to, I just remember just being present, just, just recognizing this awareness and then feeling the reactivity really come up and not saying anything. And then f- just watching it, just feeling it, it just came up and it passed. And I just remember being there, and something very different came out of it in the response. And I, we started laughing about something. I don't know what I said. But that's that sense of being within, seeing things change, where you open into a real sense of possibility. Those default modes we talked about, those security structures, they're, um, you know, these conditioned responses, they're like, I. I was right, you know, I was like an expert. You know Shinryu Suzuki's phrase in the expert's mind, or in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. In that moment, I w- the heart is just, it's just a beginner. We can do it, it happens all the time if we're, if we're really present. It's possibility and I don't know, you don't necessarily know what's gonna come out of it, but something fresh just might pop out and you might be in a better place with that person or yourself. So that's change that when something disappears. There's the nature of change. Another way of looking at impermanence or seeing into that I think is equally as valuable. This is a quote by Einstein. He said, energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only be changed from one form to another. And I think this is beautiful because w- when we think of impermanence and change, we think things should end. It's just this, it's just the positioning we have in our minds. And they do. Maybe. But they change. So changing form. So when the heart is stuck, our emotions are stuck and the light of awareness is sustained naturally, then that, those frozen parts, they melt. They start to melt. We feel it. And that's just the changing of water, right? The analogy from one form to another. It's just water. Then it can flow. It's those frozen elements that can be used in the service of living, and it goes to a very deep level as well, where we see bigger whole cycles um, in a way that's that's much more relaxed, much more inclusive. So the analogy I gave of the the um, the tree that was you know that just gestating seeds in the awareness seeds in the ground. They grew to be a tree and then eventually they would decay. And then that decay goes into the earth and that becomes food for the next cycle of growth. And it's actually the same way with us as human beings. That we grow, we, we live, and then we decay. And we don't like that, right? <laughs> but actually, and we die. And what energy in us it carries on? How m- are your parents living in you, and your the inspiration in you, and you'll carry things on. So there's energy moves, it changes, it its birth, its death, its birth, and I think that when we touch that within our in the bigger picture or in little ways, then it's very beautiful because we're accepting the entire movement of life. We're not. M- you know, putting our imposition that it needs to be any particular way. And it can express itself in myriad ways, just arising like the poem Larry read this morning, arising and passing away, right? In that poem, it says, it says, don't trouble over experience, I'm paraphrasing, right? Allowing things to arise, pass away and arise again. And it says, in the poem, it says, magically, time without end. So it's just this flow. It's learning not to struggle with it, but move with it. When we become deeply habituated to awareness and shamatha and vipassana are one, then our home is here, right? Wherever we are, and we really learn to let go. We don't hold. Things can come and they can go. They can come back if they need to, too. If they don't need to come back, they don't have to. Ajahn Chah says if you let go a little, you get a little peace, right? You let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. When you completely let go, there's complete peace. And for us, our letting go is into our life. There's no separation. In the end, it's very, very simple. From the Bahia Sutta, the Buddha said, in the scene, there's just the scene. In the herd, there's just the herd. Even in thoughts, there's just the thought. There's just things as they are. And when that happens, there's no sense of you. There's nothing fixed. There's no self, but there's a complete engagement with life. Dogen calls it intimacy. Awakening is intimacy with life at this very deep level. Okay, it's a little heavy, but... So my last thing is from Larry's teacher, Song Sanim, who, uh, he he had this famous thing, don't know mind. It's kind of like sort of like beginner's mind, but don't know mind. So he does this interview with this radio announcer. And you know, this long interview, and at the end he says, the announcer says, that's a great, great interview, Song Sanim, because he was very charismatic. But he said, I just don't get one thing. What is donut mind? <laughs> and he goes, Oh, wonderful! Whole, empty in the middle. <laughs> Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening.